Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. Thank you for joining us. As you listen to the proclamation of God's Word, our prayer for you is the same prayer that Jesus prayed for His church in John 17, 17. Father, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. Going through the book verse by verse, I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. And I think what you're really going to see is once we're finished with the book, and we're about halfway through right now, and there are still plenty of uh, fun and exciting things ahead uh, in 1 Corinthians. But I think what you'll find is um, that when you go back and read it later on, you're going to have just that much more of an in-depth understanding about the situation at Corinth, the background, and what all of this meant. And and as we do this, we'll go different books. As long as the Lord uh, allows us, we'll, we'll uh, preach through different books. And eventually you will have a completely kind of new foundational understanding of the entire New Testament as hopefully you'll all just stay here until I get old and gray and can't hardly preach anymore, okay? Uh, and even then you'll have to prop me up and I'm still going to, I'll probably just try to preach till I kill over. But uh, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 through 24. 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 24. And you know, what's really great about this is that a lot of times you wouldn't go to a passage like this uh, and just dig into it because it, it, it at its surface doesn't seem like, you know, it, there's a whole lot of interesting stuff. But it's actually extremely powerful and really interesting. So if you would stand with me as we read. This is the Word of God, starting in verse 17. Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is keeping the keeping of the commandments of God. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you're able also to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brothers, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would open our eyes to the truth today and that the Spirit would enlighten the things, Lord, that we need to see in your word and, and Lord, would enlighten in our own lives the way we need to submit and allow you to change us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Christians individually and corporately serve God in many different ways and this passage says that God has assigned each of us to live a Christ-like life within an appointed context, the context in which we were called, the context in which we became followers of Christ. And obviously, the gospel as the body of Christ compels us to face the issues of everyday life within our context, first within the local body, the church, like dealing with the needs and, and the issues within the local body, and then secondly, within the community. For instance, we should make an effort to help those who are in need, uh, first and foremost in the church, and then secondarily in the community, such as feeding the hungry, of course, praying for healing for those who are sick, caring for the sick, and those who are dealing with disease and injury. In fact, Throughout history, the body of Christ has led the way in society. Godly believers have purposed to be the hands and feet of Jesus in some of the most tragic and difficult circumstances. Read history. 
uh, about the, the Black Plague and of all the folks who were dying during that time, the church did not hide away in their homes and try to protect themselves from danger. The, the church actually would go out and collect the bodies of those who had passed in the community to give them a proper burial. They loved people and put themselves at risk in order to love those families who were facing those devastating losses. But godly believers have purpose to build hospitals. You see a hospital, it's either, a lot of times it's Catholic or a Baptist hospital. You see these different hospitals, they build orphanages. Many believers have started ministries to visit and serve and hopefully save prisoners, uh, to help the poor, to engage in the adoption of orphans and those uh, children who are in need in that way, and also to care for widows, those who have no one to care for them. That's part of the body of Christ's uh, responsibility. As I said, clearly first and foremost within the, the confines of the local body, there should never be a church that allows someone in need in the local body to continue in need without addressing that issue, if at all possible. Can I get an amen? So that's part of our uh, commitment to one another within the local body. And then beyond that, we try to help in the community and show the love of Christ as much as we possibly can. Um, however, everything I've mentioned are things that believers do in order to help the immediate needs of those who are in need so that they might lead them to Christ and help first and foremost in, with their eternal needs. The fact that they are lost and they need a Savior. That is the, the whole point and purpose of even caring for people first and foremost is to lead them to Christ if they don't know Christ. The church of the past did not do what they did to bring about a social change by way of an uprising leading to a revolution. Okay, That is not how the church reacted in the past. Christ made it very clear that He did not come to launch a social or political revolution as many Jews of His day expected the Messiah to do. That He would come in being the God-man and use that God-like power to just topple you know, the Romans and deal with them once and for all. Remember, if there ever was a need for a revolution um, to topple a powerful oppressor, it would have been in that dark period of history in which the, the Romans had overtaken so many different people groups, including uh, the, the Jews in Christ's day. But look to what Jesus said uh, to Pilate in John 18.36. John 18, 36. I'll give you a moment to turn there. Look of John 18, 36. Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting, that I may not be delivered up to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. You see in Luke 19.10, Luke 19.10, Jesus made it clear that His mission was to seek and save that which was lost. And of course, we know seeking and saving that which was lost is the continuing mission of the body of Christ. That's our mission in the world, to seek and save that which was lost. And here's a danger that we all need to be aware of, especially in our day and age. When Christianity becomes too closely identified with any sort of social movement, then the message of the gospel is in danger of being lost in that social movement. A moral movement, a social movement, a political movement, and yes, even religious movements, if you aren't careful, can actually hijack the mission of the church and make it all about something else. So by doing so, they can lead large quantities of people on a moral crusade, giving them a false sense of security based on goodness and equality or equity is a buzzword these days. And if that isn't a poster child for the whole uh, being a form of godliness but, not, but denying its power... How would it be a form of godliness but deny its power? Well, those movements, those social justice movements, for instance, 
though well-meaning, are humanistic at their very core. They leave God out. They circumvent, more importantly, they, they circumvent the cross of Christ and they lead crowds down the road, that broad road that leads to destruction, instead of through that narrow way that leads to life. And it's the spreading of the gospel, Christ crucified, His death, His burial, His resurrection, His ascension, sitting at the right hand of the Father. That reality and that truth is what powerfully transforms an individual from the inside out. It transforms an individual from the inside out. That is the power of the gospel. It is that, that word transformation, metamorphoso, metamorphosi. That's the Greek. I'm terrible at Greek. The bottom line is, we get the word metamorphosis, and it's the same word used for that caterpillar in a cocoon. It goes in looking one way and comes out looking completely different, and that's the picture of the transformation in the life of the believer. As the gospel transforms one individual, then two, then four, it multiplies exponentially, and eventually the gospel has transformed families and households. It's transformed and changed a city or a town. It's transformed the, the face of a state and, and potentially even a nation in their purpose. There were many, many years that this nation had a purpose to further the gospel of Jesus Christ around the world. And we, the United States of America, being the most powerful and wealthy nation in the history of the world, was, I believe, chosen by God for that re very reason because so many believers in the United States of America gave their money and their time and their resources to send missionaries around the globe and spread the gospel all over the world. Now we need to pray for all those missionaries to come back home and to start being missionaries. Matter of fact, I would encourage you all to begin looking at yourselves as missionaries to the United States of America. That might be the right perspective for us to have these days. But when the gospel of Jesus Christ is faithfully followed, it cannot help but have radical effects on every person and the social construct in which it is engaged and it touches. It's not a revolution by means of military warfare, but renewal through spiritual warfare. It's not a revolution of speaking truth to power, but of speaking truth to the least of these and watching the least of these transform the world around them. And as each individual genuinely gives themselves over to the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it permeates every facet of society. It is not a social revolution. It is a spiritual revival. That's what we're after. The message of our passage today is focused on those who are often the most powerless in a society. But they are the ones with the most power to highlight the true gospel of Jesus Christ. The least of these. Those that have the least amount of power in the spiritual realm have the most power to point to Christ and salvation. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not the, the uh, opposite of a country song like that joke. When you play a country record backwards, you get your wife back, you get your house back, your dog back, all that stuff. It's not being, becoming a Christian isn't like all of a sudden things are just peachy. You get everything back and everything's going your way. No, that is not what we're talking about when you become a Christian. And that's what Paul is highlighting here. The gospel proclaims that even if I stay in my current condition, even if things get worse, even if I lose everything, Christ is enough. Christ is enough. So what is the message for us then? Well, we should be satisfied to be right where God has placed us. We should accept what the Lord has assigned for us. We should be faithful and content in whatever condition or circumstance God has called us. Obviously, in this passage, the Apostle Paul is not telling believers to stay in professions that are sinful or illegal. He's not saying, hey, if, if you're a prostitute, yeah, you can remain in prostitution. If you're a drunkard, it's okay to keep getting drunk. That's, that's not what he's saying here, okay? 
It, the sin that defines the life of a sinner before Christ, all of that is to be left behind and you are then to obey Christ and that is the true mark of a follower of Jesus Christ. And the thing Paul's pointing to here is about believers being content within the social conditions and situations that they were in at the point of their salvation. That they shouldn't immediately start turning their lives upside down as far as their social status and all of that in order uh, just because they had become a Christian. The, in the context, this Corinthian church was actually very discontent in many different ways. Some believers wanted to change their marital status from, from married to single. And some wanted to change their status from single to married. And some who had unbelieving partners wanted to get a divorce. Okay? And uh, switch out their partner for a believing one. That's, God's not okay with that. Okay? Uh, and then, of course, the example of slaves... And you, I'm certain we could all imagine why slaves wanted to be free. They wanted to be free. But see, in this discontentment, they abused their freedom in Christ and their attitude was that freedom in Christ was freedom to do as they please instead of freedom to do what pleases God. And that was the difference. Because of this attitude then, what we see in the church at Corinth is uh, unity in that family severely hampered and diminished. There were various con contentious factions. Some groups were encouraging those with the gift of celibacy to get married. Not encouraging, but actually saying, hey, you're, you're not spiritual if you don't get married and have a bunch of kids. And then other groups were encouraging those who were married to become celibate and, and making the argument that if you're married, that you're not really spiritual, that if you really want to be spiritual, you got to uh, do away with your marriage and serve Christ only. So Paul was dealing with all of these things. Believing slaves in this context were feeling victimized under their bondage and they were trying to find spiritual justification for demanding freedom from their masters. And as I mentioned before, the gospel does strongly condemn and contradict the wicked values and systems of the world, especially things like slavery. But believers should not have a goal to destroy governments, societies, and families. That's the whole point of this. Remember, if the gospel is truly believed and obeyed, better government, better societies, and better families will be the result. Believers can be Christ-like in a dictatorship or in a democracy. We can be Christ-like under anarchy or even under the leadership of an inept liberal old man. We can be Christ-like as men, as women, as children, married, single, divorced, slave, or free. We can be Christ-like in any of those circumstances. We can be Christ-like in Russia or in Ukraine, in Cuba or in China, in France or Japan. No matter what the situation, a believer comes to Christ. Paul is encouraging them, you can be Christ-like. God's never put a stamp, His stamp of approval on corrupt governments, or immoral societies. Never. We see things in the Old Testament that are confusing. God never condoned those things, but sometimes He allowed those things to go on. But you can be sure that all of those things, all of the injustices, all of the sin of man will be judged in His time and in His way. It will be swift. It will be complete. And no one will be left standing. All will bow to their knee and confess that Christ is Lord. Again, the purpose of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not to revolutionize large corporate entities or ethnicities or nations, but to revolutionize individual hearts in a way that reflects His nature. The gospel 
has always been laser focused at each single human heart. The individual who finds the narrow gate and walks along the narrow way and not that broad road of human societal constructs, social movements, and even devout religious people. Christ butted heads more with the church leaders of his day than anyone else. So just because it's wearing the, uh, the outward appearance of a religious movement or a religious event or even a church, we need to be very careful. God's word can take root wherever there's one person who hears the gospel and accepts it. One person is all it takes. Even in countries or families that are pagan, that are atheistic, that are humanistic, or that are flat out anti-Christian. If the gospel is brought into that area, there's a hope for families and and lives to be changed and rearranged for, for God's kingdom. I remember reading about the war in Afghanistan and that before the war in Afghanistan, there were only around 300 believers that actually professed to be followers of Christ. And after the war, there was over, well, at the time I read it, it was within eight years of the war, there were over 20,000 believers at that time. So even when we look at the outward surface and say, no, we don't want war, we don't want anything like that, it allowed the gospel through Christian military to go in and share the gospel. They were digging holes in the sand and laying down tarps and filling them with water and baptizing them in the middle of the desert. The gospel is pervasive and the gospel wins. And that's what we always need to remember. He has sheep in every one of those situations. And when we faithfully speak the word of truth, his sheep will hear his voice and his sheep will follow him. That is guaranteed. So no matter how we come to Jesus, as the saying goes, we should bloom where we're planted. We should stay where the Lord has assigned us. And where God has called us is where we should walk. This is a principle that applies to us. We can't point our finger judgmentally at that those toddlers, those spiritual toddlers in that church in Corinth. That would be wrong because Paul says here that he instructs this for all the churches. That includes us. God's primary purpose for his church in every nation is for them to evangelize and to build his church through spiritual regeneration and not try to change the world through social revolution. And there's a big uh, uh, neon sign for us to take note of. These, all of these movements, I call them parasites out there right now, that like to attach themselves to the gospel and say, well, if you're a Christ follower, then you should be on board with all these different social justice warriors, you know, uh, their, their crusades that they're on. No, we shouldn't. Our crusade is the cross of Christ, period. That's that. We're not going to support outside uh, organizations that are trying to hijack the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in our passage in verse 18, that was all my intro, by the way. Settle in. So in our passage in verse 18, the first illustration Paul points to has to do with their identity as Jew or Gentile. And he writes, quote, Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. And in the epistles, um, being called by God, this when he uses the phrase called, it's always referring to salvation, coming to Christ. So when a Jew is saved, he's saying, he should not become like a Gentile. And there was something that actually, this was something that actually went on back then. When a, when a Jew was saved, oftentimes they would try to... Uh, be uncircumcised, meaning they would have an actual surgery so that when they were in the public bathhouses and gymnasiums with other Gentile men, it would look like they were Gentiles. This was something that actually happened, and this could be what Paul is referring to here. To them, it was an embarrassment. However, Paul's meaning here could be figurative in its nature as it refers to that, as we've always seen in, in the uh, the epistles as 
well, a circumcised is a Jew, an uncircumcised is a Gentile. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Remember when David uh, was fighting Goliath and he called him the uncircumcised Philistine? You're out of covenant with God. I'm, I'm a Jew. I'm in covenant with God. And you're defying, you uncircumcised Philistine, you're defying the God of Israel in whom we are in covenant with? Like that's the nature. And so there's that aspect of this as well. But obviously we have to understand what he's talking about is while you accept Christ and become a Christ follower, you leave things behind and many of the things that you believed as a, as a uh, practicing Jew, you would leave behind. You don't have to leave your identity as a Jew. There's nothing embarrassing about it. Don't try to look like a Gentile. So Paul's making that point. And Paul says here that the same principle applies to Gentiles as well. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? Let him not be circumcised. Gentiles who become Christians are not to become like the Jews either. And the problem concerning circumcision was not nearly as serious in the church at Corinth as it was in the church at Galatia. Because in Galatia, there were these folks called Judaizers, and they came into the church, and they had reached back into the, their Jewish religious beliefs and said, well, yes, you're coming to Christ, but you also have to be circumcised in order to be saved as well. And that was a huge deal. Um, but in Corinth, I think it was more that they had marked circumcision as kind of a, a special designation amongst uh, some of the believers. And, and Paul is saying here, the point is, circumcision was no longer necessary, either for salvation. It has absolutely no spiritual significance or value for Christ followers at all. And that's why he flat out says, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. And to make it something would be wrong for the believer. Then unmistakably, he says what really matters. He says, what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. This is not news to us. We read this all throughout the Gospels and the Epistles. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, Jesus says. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. They follow in his footsteps. What did we learn last week? Not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, will enter into heaven, but he who does the will of my Father will enter into heaven. So we should all obey, but we need to understand in the body that obedience can cost us everything. Obedience can cost us everything, but no matter the situation we are in, it is always possible. We can and should be obedient anywhere and in any circumstance. I love the stories that I've heard of the missionaries in Ukraine who rolled up their sleeves and they called their sending organizations and they said, we're staying. We're not going anywhere. We're staying here. We're going to continue to preach the gospel. We're going to be a, the light of Christ even in this dark hour for Ukraine. And of course, we need to always keep them in our hearts and minds as we lift them up in prayer. Let's look at verse 20. And we're going to, we're going to read since he's talking about this, this subject, next subject encapsulated in verses 20 through 24. Each man must remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you're able also to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's free man. Likewise, he, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brothers, each one is to remain with God in that condition which he was called. So first in verse 17... He says that, and now again in verse 20, beginning with this section, Paul pushes the idea again of being content in the condition in which you were saved. He repeats it again. Whether it's ethnic or social or whatever, doesn't matter. And now his second illustration is concerning slavery. Paul's not approving of slavery. I want to make that very clear. He's not suggesting that it's a good condition to live under um, as freedom would be. His point is that if a person is a slave, 
that person is still able to live a Christ-like life. Now, for us, that's kind of unthinkable, isn't it? The, the idea of slavery. But when you use an example like that, like the bottom of the rung when it comes to social status is a slave, right? And he's saying, he's saying even in that situation, you can still be Christ-like. He is just as capable in the power of the Spirit to obey and serve Jesus Christ in the context of his slavery as he would be if he were a free man. So no circumstance, no matter how terrible, painful, unjust, whatever, nothing can keep us from representing Jesus in a Christ-like manner. That needs to be at the forefront of our hearts and minds. Even a slave, they can actually serve Jesus through their slavery. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. Ephesians 6, 5 through 8. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the integrity of your heart, as to Christ. There's an important thing that we need to see in this passage. They're saying, when you look at your master, see right through them and see Christ standing there. And when you serve your master in the flesh, understand that you're not actually serving him, you're serving Christ. Do you understand? Let's continue. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, serving with good will as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. So Paul consistently taught this principle throughout the epistles. Look at Colossians 3. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 23 through 24. Colossians 3, verses 23 through 24. Colossians 3, 23 through 24. It's almost as if the Holy Spirit was inspiring Paul to write the same types of things to the body of Christ. Here's what it says. Whatever you do... Do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Serve the Lord Christ. I think this is important for us to really get a hold of in our workplaces, in our families, wives toward their husbands, husbands toward their wives. Everything you do, every single little thing that you do, you can do it as unto the Lord. And if you do it as unto the Lord, it becomes an act of worship. And there is an eternal reward waiting once we leave this world behind. That's an incredible thing. So slaves were supposed to serve their masters honestly and sincerely as for the Lord rather than for men. And slaves had this unique, very powerful opportunity to be a witness for the Lord. They could show their masters that they worked hard, not because they were forced to, but because they wanted to, and not just for not to please their master, but to please their heavenly master, their true Lord and their true master. They could show true peace in the midst of their slavery, and this pointed the other slaves and the masters to notice that it was the power of the, their salvation and the power of the Spirit that allowed them to do this, even in those terrible circumstances. In Scripture, there was a runaway slave named Onesimus. And Paul had led Onesimus to Christ while he was in prison. Onesimus had an owner, and that slave owner's name was Philemon, to whom Paul wrote a letter to, and it just happens to be our book of Philemon. Yes, Philemon was a Christ follower. And Paul called him my beloved brother and fellow worker. And the church at Coloss actually met in Philemon's home. And the apostles make strong, personal, spiritual cases for Philemon in that book. The apostle Paul 
makes this case for Philemon to forgive Onesimus for running away and made the case for him to accept him back, not just as a slave, but as a Christian brother in Christ. Now that's powerful. Again, Paul did not use this letter to condemn slavery itself outright. He didn't call Philemon an oppressor, right? The patriarchy. He didn't bring all that stuff up. He didn't question his legal rights over his slave. Paul didn't fight for social equality for Onesimus. Paul used slavery as an object lesson for the believer's walk with Christ, and they understood what that meant. Because in the Roman Empire, listen to me, in the Roman Empire during Paul's time, one-third of the population were slaves. Take one-third of the folks who are in this room today, and that's who Paul is talking to. One-third of the people during that time were slaves. And the slaves of his day were often better educated, more skilled, more literate and cultured than any other slaves throughout history. They were well taken care of. In fact, some of these slaves during that time were doctors and teachers. They were accountants and other professionals. But still, out of that one-third, some of them had it great, but most lived in poverty Most lived with humiliation under the heavy hand of cruel slave owners. Still, Paul made no distinction here between those who were those slaves who had it great and those slaves who were under that heavy oppressive hand. He says any slave in any circumstance was to be willing to remain as he was. Because listen, only sin. Only sin can keep us from obeying and serving the Lord. Your circumstances cannot. You can never point to your circumstances and say, that's the reason why I'm sinning. But, but you need to consider my, my situation. There's none of that. In every situation, you can reflect the nature of Christ and bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So if we're in a different difficult, uncomfortable, restricting situation. He says we're not supposed to worry about it. We should be determined to be faithful as long as the Lord has us in that situation. So Paul makes that point, but he goes on to make it clear that he does not consider slavery to be a desired state or desired situation for believers. He says, if you're able also to become free, rather do that. If you can gain your freedom... I'm all for it. Go for it, right? Freedom is way better than slavery. And if a Christian isn't more spiritual, he's saying a Christian isn't more spiritual for staying a slave. If a believing slave has a chance to become free, that believer should take advantage of it. Paul's saying that's okay. But Paul realized he was content to be in jail while he was in jail and served the Lord as long as he was in jail. As a matter of fact, he he conducted a whole lot of his ministry from behind prison bars. But when they opened that door to let him go, he didn't stick around and hang out and shoot the breeze with with the prison guards. He was out of there and he was preaching the gospel again. So it's interesting that while the gospel does not approve of social revolution, even one to end something as as disgusting as slavery... As we mentioned, if the gospel is being preached, it results in transformed lives, transformed societies, and has brought freedom to more slaves than any philosophy, movement, or political system in human history. The gospel is powerful, and it is pervasive, and it can turn societies upside down. In the past, some Christians unfortunately have tried to use Scripture to say that slavery was okay. They tried to justify it, and that is just ridiculous. And that is something that the Bible never does in any way, shape, or form. Wherever Christians are faithful to Scripture, though, we have seen in human history that slavery cannot flourish. Yes, we had our dark days in this country, but those are in the past now. And it was the light of Christ that was largely responsible for that transformation to take place. Eventually, that 
construct of society fell apart. And Paul makes this point that even if you're a free man, you're still a slave to God. And if you're a slave to man, you are free in Christ. So he's basically saying six of one, half a dozen of the other for the believer. It doesn't matter if you're slave or free. It doesn't matter. You're still a slave to Christ if you're free. And if you're a slave to man, you're free in Christ. And he just throws that out there to say it doesn't matter. You need to understand that. Let us be certain of this next fact. There is no slavery as cruel as the slavery from which Christ freed us. In Christ, we are free from the power and the penalty of sin. We are free from Satan. We are free from judgment, from condemnation, and eventually we are free from the wrath that we were designated for in hell. Every Christ follower has already been delivered from the slavery that really matters. And in Christ, as believers, we have the greatest, most complete, and most glorious freedom of any human beings ever. We get to enjoy that freedom. Scripture tells us it was for that freedom that Christ set us free. He set you free for freedom. And not the freedom of the world. Doesn't mean all the, the, the bonds that hold you back in this world are going to immediately just, just shatter and, and you're, you're free to do everything you want to do in a social construct. He's saying everything that really matters in every way that really matters, you are free. A person who's been freed by Christ will stay free from now until all eternity. Just think about that for a second. So even the slave shouldn't worry about serving a master for a temporary period of time on this earth for however many years that he may live because God's Word tells us that life is a vapor. So if you live your life in this temporal world as a slave, eventually you're going to be with Christ forevermore and your reward will be great. Your reward will be Christ. Now in this situation, I suppose that there were probably believers who were free that were gloating to the other Corinthian believers in the church who were slaves. And they're human beings, they're going to act stupid because that's what we do, we act stupid. And they believed that in their freedom, because they weren't slaves, that they could just do whatever they want. But Paul makes sure they know as well. He says, likewise, he who was called while free, you're still Christ's slave. Our freedom in Christ is not to sin. Your freedom in Christ is from sin, from the effects and the penalty and the power of sin. It's not freedom to do our own will, but we use our freedom to do Christ's will. In Romans 6.22, Romans 6.22, Paul says this, In Christ we are freed from sin and enslaved to God. And he uses that terminology all throughout Scripture that we are slaves, bond slaves to Christ. We just, before we're saved and after we're saved, we just swap masters. Because make no mistake, we all had a master before we were saved. It may not have been a man in the, in the uh, construct or the context of slavery. But we all had a master. And when we put our focus on our spiritual freedom and our slavery to Christ, whether or not we're free or under oppression among men is not that big of a deal. We can look at it with the right perspective, that eternal perspective, and we can live with the right attitude. We are His slaves. We have been bought with a price. And so our biggest concern, whether we're slave or free, should that be that we do not allow ourselves to become a slave to sin again. Sin, either in the type of sin, like I mentioned before, the you know prostitution, drunkenness, all of that kind of stuff, that worldly sin, but also religious, like um, the, the kind of religious legalism that so many times church people fall into. In this passage, Paul's talking about spiritual slavery, about becoming slaves to the ways of men, to the worldly ways, that we can 
fall in love with this world again, even after we've had some form of experience with Christ. And that we could turn away from Christ, not having truly been saved, but falling again in love with the world and walking in the ways of the flesh. And the, many of the Corinthians had fallen into this kind of slavery again. And it caused divisions and strife and led to their immaturity and to their immorality. In 1 Peter 1.19, Peter says that we were bought with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless with the blood of Christ. What an incredible price Christ paid to pour out every drop of His blood to cover our sin. We have been bought by God and we belong to Him. And we should never become the moral or spiritual slaves of men and the ways of the world, living by the standards of the world and seeking to please men and please the world. And this is why when things get so bad in our society, and society is telling us that this particular sin or these particular things are acceptable now, the church is not to conform to those things. We go along as long as there's a semblance of goodness and, and, and uh, you know, a biblical standard that it seems it doesn't contradict with our biblical standard. But once it does, once it crosses that line, it is the responsibility of the believer to shine the light of Christ and to not accommodate the worldly sinful beliefs that they are imposing upon society, and especially trying to impose upon the body of Christ. And so for a third time, Paul repeats that principle in verse 24. You think he wants the Corinthian believers to get that? Here's what he says again. Brothers, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Third time's a charm, right? He wants us to get the point as well. Whatever condition we are in, when we are called, whatever condition you're in right now, you can be content. You should be willing to be steadfast and remain in that very condition for Christ's sake, even if it takes your lifetime. I have a very good inkling that in our culture and in this country, things are going to continue to get worse. And in discussing these societal issues and embracing areas of sin and depravity that are in direct contradiction with how the body of Christ should be living their lives. That got your attention. And as that continues, and as we see that wave grow larger and larger and we face that my hope is that what we're doing in this room today and every Sunday and Wednesday night loving on one another building one another up in Christ encouraging one another holding one another accountable that we are building one another up to withstand that day that is yet ahead for the church in which we may find ourselves behind bars, or we may find ourselves facing situations that we never dreamed we would face. But I would be absolutely wrong as a pastor to not prepare you and your family to at least be ready for that to happen. I pray it doesn't. I pray that revival breaks out and, and, uh, and we see tons of people come to Christ and that's my prayer and that's my hope. But if it doesn't, we should at least be ready and willing to inoculate ourselves in the truth of the Word of God and realize that even if we wind up on that lowest of the lowest level of society, that we would still know that it is our job and our honor to be Christ-like even in the worst of the worst circumstances. Amen? God has called us to stay where we are and to be faithful to His purposes. I want to read Philippians 3, 11 through 13 in closing. Philippians 3, 11 through 13. We read it already in our scripture reading. 
And I just want you to let this sink in because this is such a key to life. It truly is huge. You might even print this out and stick it on your fridge. Philippians 3, 11 through 13. Not that I speak from want, for I learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in abundance. In any and all things I have learned, the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And in that context, he makes this incredible statement, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me in the context of having very little or being on the lowest rung of, of, of social status or having a lot and being on the highest, the, the, the apex of social status. doesn't matter. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and His purpose is my purpose. Here's the deal to the Corinthians and to us. Coming to Christ is not a permission slip for the believer to leave their current social condition, whether it be their marriage, their singleness, whether they have some form of a human master. You may think, some of you may think your, your boss at work is treating you like a, like a master. Even your circumstances, we have no excuse we're supposed to leave our sin behind and we're supposed to leave anything that encourages sin behind. What did Christ say? If your right arm causes you to sin, cut it off. And we don't want, you know, people to walk around here with without arms. What, you know, he's saying whatever it is that leads you to the place of that sin, get rid of it. Get it out of your life. Do not give it a place in your life. If your computer causes you to sin, Throw it out the window. It's just a dumb computer. It has no eternal value. Know where to draw the line. But other than that, in the life of the believer, we're to stay where we are, always content in Christ until He purposefully moves us. Amen? Let's pray.